0: Well, thank you, Jeff. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the guys here on staff. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12, as we get a little encouragement here from John. Now, I don't know if you have ever received a backhanded compliment or kind of a backhanded encouragement. If you haven't, it's where somebody tries to compliment you or tries to encourage you, but it also has a little sting to it, right? So if somebody comes up and says, that shirt makes you look thinner, you think, how did the other shirts make me look, right? Or that's a cool tattoo. Do you not work? Or something like that. It sounds like a compliment, but it's also kind of a criticism. I like your new haircut. I see that you're going for that sleepy turtle look. You have those kind of things. And so when I was in, uh, in middle school, I actually had a teacher. I was just a kid. I was in middle school, and I had a teacher give me a backhanded compliment, a backhanded encouragement in front of the class. He said, Zach, your humor is like a rusty razor. That's what he said. Now, little does he know that now I speak for a living, and I get to use that rusty razor humor to make money. So the joke's on you, Mr. Miller. But that's what, a, that's what a backhanded compliment or a backhanded encouragement is. It's where you're kind of encouraging somebody, but you're also kind of criticizing them. Well, that's not what we're gonna see today in the text. What John is going to do is he's is going to give us some, some authentic encouragement. He's not gonna give us this correcting type of encouragement. He's just gonna give us pure encouragement because we as sinful humans are quick to forget the promises of God, okay? Let me say it this way. Wives, do you like it when your husband tells you that he loves you, yes or no? Yes, you do. Why do you like that? Don't you already know that? Isn't that obvious by the fact that he married you? Yes, but we need to hear it again. There's something about the human heart that forgets these things. You need to hear that you're beautiful and that your husband loves you. Even though you know it, it's easy to doubt it. It's easy to start thinking maybe it's not true. Well, the same thing is true in Christianity. How many times does the Bible have to tell us you're forgiven? A lot, because it's hard for us to believe that. How many times does the Bible have to tell us that God loves us? A lot, because it's hard for us to believe it. How many times does the Bible have to tell us there's no condemnation for those in Christ? A lot, because it's hard for us to believe it. So what John is going to be giving us today is not a lot of new information, He's going to be giving us old information that our sinful hearts are quick to forget, and he's going to do so in this kind of poetic style. Now, before we get into the actual text in verse 12, I want you to notice four things about this text, okay? First, I want you to see the structure. This text has an ABC, ABC pattern. It will do children, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. Notice that pattern as we work through the text, okay? Okay. The second thing you need to note is that the genre of this little passage in 1 John is different than most of what we've seen in 1 John, okay? John has been writing this letter to Christians, encouraging them in their faith and warning them against false teaching, and right in the middle of his letter, he just burst out into a little poem, okay? I think I'm going to start answering emails that way, by the way. You're like, what time does service start? And I give you the answer and then just give you a little poem, okay? But he writes this little poem to try to encourage these Christians. So to give you an example, I've written one about our very own worship minister, Tim Hollis. Would you like to hear it? Okay. Tim, I like your music. It sounds really great. But when you're loud during the week, it causes in me hate. Okay. That's my little encouraging poem for Tim. Okay. And so that's what John's going to do minus the sarcasm. He's going to burst forth in this little poem to encourage the Christians that he is writing to. The third thing I want you to see is that the things mentioned in these passages are true of all Christians. Okay. So here's what I mean by that. When it says young men, you have overcome the evil one. That doesn't mean that if you're not a young man, you have not overcome the evil one, okay? All these truths are true of all Christians. They're not just true of the individual categories uh, that they are assigned to here. And then the last thing before we get into the text, I have five encouragements for you from this text, and we're even gonna put them on the screen as we get to them, okay? There are six lines here, but one of the encouragements is mentioned verbatim twice. And so there are five main encouragements that you need to hear from God from this text this morning. Everybody with me before we begin? Okay, let's pray and then we'll jump into verse 12. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you are great and that we need your help. That we are broken and hurting and sinful. We cannot earn your salvation. We cannot do it good enough. We just need your grace. And we doubt. Every one of these things I doubt. I doubt that you really love me. I doubt that I'm really forgiven. When I sin and make mistakes and do terrible things, I instantly think that you just hate me and there's no grace left. And so I feel as though I'm probably not the only one. So would you reassure our hearts before you that when our hearts condemn us, you are greater than our hearts and you know all things. We love you and thank you in Christ's name, amen. Okay, verse 12 is where we'll begin in this text. He says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now here's the first thing you need to know little children here. Here's how some people interpret this passage. They think that little children is a reference to brand new baby Christians and young men is a reference to slightly older Christians. And then fathers is a reference to even older Christians. And they kind of make these three different classifications of Christians. That's not what little children here means. Okay. When John says little children, that is a reference to all Christians. Okay. Little children is John's way. Grandfatherly John, He's an old apostle at this time. That's his way of addressing the Christians. I don't know if you uh, have ever had an older man call you son. Say, get over here, son. Something like that if you're a guy. It's kind of like that. John is using this phrase, little Christians, because he loves these people and he's an apostle, so he sees himself as kind of this grandfatherly figure. Let me give you a few places where this occurs so you can see what I'm talking about. First John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 1 John 3, 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 1 John five twenty one, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So you need to know where he uses the phrase little children, that is a reference to all Christians. Now we'll talk about what fathers and young men mean in just a second, but that is a reference to all Christians. And here we're given our first encouragement. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven For his name's sake. So here's the first encouragement you need to see in this text. That you are forgiven. That you are forgiven. Okay, Zach, I know that. That's church words. No, 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 no. You are forgiven. God has no wrath for you if you're a Christian. He has separated your sins as far as the east is from the west. That you are forgiven. In Greek here where it says are forgiven, it is what is called a perfect tense verb. Nerd, what does that mean? Here's what a perfect tense verb is. A perfect tense verb is something that was completed in the past but still has relevance for the present. The better way that you could actually translate this verse if you wanna jot this down in your Bible is your sins stand forgiven. That's the idea. Not just that God forgave you and then it went away because you committed new sins but that your sins stand forgiven. You are forgiven. Now listen to this because a lot of people don't understand this. When Christ saves you, It's not that you're just forgiven for all the sins up to that point, okay? Because if God just forgave you for your past sins, as soon as you committed more sins, you would be damned. What God does is he forgives you for all your sins, past, present, and future. If that's confusing to you, let me say it this way. From the perspective of Jesus dying on the cross, how many of your sins were future? All of them forgiveness is not just God giving you a blank slate and now you have a second start, which you will then screw up. Rather, it is God saying, though you will continue to sin, though you will continue to struggle, I've moved you from the category of my wrath to the category of my love and that you are forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future. Zach, if that's true, why do we still repent in the Christian life? For the same reason that when you get into an argument with your spouse, you still go apologize even though you remain married to them, even though you remain married to them. There's a, uh, a guy early on in church history, Constantine. You ever heard that name, Emperor Constantine? Christianity was illegal for the first three centuries, okay? So Christianity was illegal under the Roman Empire, under the Roman Empire, until you had this emperor named Constantine. And he was going to battle, he was going to fight in this particular uh, campaign that he was in, and he had a dream where there was a cross, as the story goes. And it said, in hoc signo vinces." in this sign conquer, And so Constantine won the battle and said, okay, well, I guess Christianity's true. And then Christianity went from being illegal to a religio licita, a legal religion, and spread throughout the Roman Empire. Now, there's a lot of debate on whether or not Constantine was saved. He was probably not regenerate. He was a scoundrel after that. But an interesting thing to note is he waited until his deathbed to be baptized. Why? Because he thought that you would only be forgiven for the sins up until your baptism. So if that's the case, you definitely want to get as many of those in there as you can, so you just wait till the very last second, right? That was kind of his idea. No, no, you are forgiven for all sins, past, present, and future, and that's the first thing that you know that you don't really know. It's the first thing that you would say you believe if I gave you a theology test, but you don't rest in the fact that you are forgiven forgiven. In other Christian traditions, so if you came from a Baptist church or a Bible church or a non-denominational church, you're probably not used to this, but in other Christian traditions like in Anglicanism and Lutheranism and some of these others, what a pastor will do when you confess your sins is they will speak over you what is called a word of absolution. A word of absolution. Now let me explain what that is. That's not the pastor or the priest forgiving you for your sins. They can't do that. Only God can do that. That is the pastor or the priest telling you with human words that God has already done that for you. We are sensible creatures, so when we confess our sins, it helps to have somebody look us in the eye and say, I know you're gonna try to beat yourself up and condemn yourself, look at me. You are forgiven. And it's what's known as a word of absolution. Martin Luther says this about it. Hear the gospel, which is precisely the word of absolution. You should hear this wherever and however often you need it. You should receive and believe it as if you were hearing it from Christ himself. Since it is not our absolution, but Christ's command and word, it is just as powerful as if it were heard from his own mouth. That is what John is doing here. He's giving a word of absolution. Hear me, little children. Hear me, Christians. You are forgiven. Your sins stand forgiven. Your current status is as one who is forgiven. Now look at the end of verse 12. Verse 12. What does for his namesake mean, okay? What does it mean to say that we're forgiven for his namesake? Here's what it means. You are forgiven only because of Jesus. That's his namesake. You are forgiven only because of Jesus. God does not forgive you because you deserve it. God does not forgive you because you're a good person. God does not forgive you because you promise to never do it again. You ever done that? Dear God, I promise you, I will never do this again and I'm so sorry, only to do it like three hours later, right? Right? God's forgiveness is not based on you promising to never do it again. God's forgiveness is not based on you making yourself try to repent hard enough. Maybe if I just show God how sorry I am, then he'll forgive me. That's not what it's based on, okay? You can never be sorry enough to earn God's favor. You would have to be infinitely sorry, which you cannot do, okay? God's forgiveness is not based on you fully conquering the sin. It's not as though if I just conquer this sin, then God will forgive me. That gets the order backwards. God forgives you by grace, and then he empowers you to walk in holiness. You are not forgiven by this. Now listen, because I know a lot of people do this. You are not forgiven by wallowing in your guilt and trying to show God how sorry you are, okay? A lot of people do that. They think that God will forgive them based upon how much self-atonement they're trying to do by beating themselves up. Monks in the Middle Ages would take whips and to show God how sorry they are would whip their own backs. God is not accepting any more sacrifices for sin. The final sacrifice for sin has already been given. The reason that God forgives you is not based upon your efforts, how hard you repent, how sorry you are, how awful you are, etc. God's forgiveness for you is for his namesake. It is based upon what Christ has done. It is for the glory of God. It's not about you. God forgives you and continues to forgive you based upon his mercy and his mercy alone. Verse 13a, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Now before we get into this text, I need to address something. Is it wrong to call somebody a father in a spiritual sense? A lot of people get uncomfortable with that kind of language. So like if you're, a, if you're Episcopalian, you might call your pastor father whoever and some Christians think you should never do that. Doesn't Jesus say, call no man father for you have one father? Doesn't Jesus say, call no man Lord, for you have one Lord? Call no man master, for you have one master? Does that mean that you cannot get a master's degree because now you're breaking Jesus' command? Does it mean when it's Father's Day, you can't say, happy Father's Day? You have to be like, happy day for being my progenitor or something like that? Does it mean that you cannot call somebody Lord? Like if you lived in the 1500s and you had a Lord and lady? No, what Jesus is saying is that you cannot ultimately call somebody Lord. Jesus is the only capital l Lord. Lord, you cannot call somebody father in an ultimate sense. Only God is a capital F, father, okay? It doesn't mean that you can't use this term of others. Let me give you a few examples where the Bible does. First, right here in verse 13, he calls them fathers. Paul does this, 1 Corinthians 4.15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Philippians 2.22 But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. So it's okay to call someone Lord or master or father, as long as you're not meaning in an ultimate sense, which uh, only belongs to God. But with this text, here's the first question that, that comes to mind, who are the fathers in this passage? Who are the fathers in this passage, okay? Here's what I think is going on with the term father and with the term young men, okay? So little children is a reference to all Christians. When he talks about fathers and young men, that refers to one of two things. That refers either to their physical age, older members of the congregation and younger members of the congregation, or it refers to their spiritual maturity. A father is someone who's been in the faith longer, whereas a young man is somebody who's not been in the faith as long. Now listen, John probably doesn't mean to really separate those things. In an ideal world, the longer you've been in the faith, the more godly you should be. Does that always happen? That does not always happen. Paul has to tell Timothy not to rebuke an older man harshly, but rather appeal to him as a father, which means young Timothy is having to rebuke older people in his congregation who are not as spiritually mature as him, okay? But in an ideal world, these things go together. But don't confuse physical age and spiritual age, if you want to say it that way. So uh, Jared, Tim, and I are uh, all younger than Jeff Ashley, Okay. Jeff Ashley is by no means an old man. I'm not even going to use Carl in this example because he's basically dead, okay? He is, he's like 96 or something at this point. Uh, he invented the French horn. Uh, and so, uh, but, but Jared, Tim and I are younger than Jeff. And so sometimes if he uses an older reference or something, we'll make fun of him for being old, even though he's not that old. So we'll, he'll say something and we'll say, hey, Jeff, is your next car going to be a Lincoln Town car? Or, hey, Jeff, you want to go get dinner at 4 p.m.? Or, hey, Jeff, do you need a second just to rest your eyes? Or, hey, Jeff, here's a Werther's butterscotch or whatever it is. We'll tease him for that even though he's not that old. Now, here's what you need to know. Though Jeff is not very old physically, he is very spiritually mature. He's godly. He knows the Bible. He loves the scriptures. He cares about pursuing holiness. He wants to make the glory of God the central theme of our lives even though he's not that physically old. So let me just address those who are younger and those who are older in here to hear what uh, I think needs to be heard. So... If you're younger, let me address you first, okay? If you're younger, please do not disregard those who are older than you in the faith. There is a wisdom there. There is a stability there. They have lived through things that you have not lived through. Please fight the tendency, which we have, which is to think that old equals bad and new is always good. Every generation has thought that. Every generation thinks they're smarter than their parents' generation. Not just you, your parents thought that, their parents thought that, their parents thought that, okay? Fight the tendency to think that only what's new is good. Christianity is about maintaining older ideas, ideas that are as old as God himself, okay? And so fight that pride and that tendency to disregard those who are older as being irrelevant or whatever, okay? Now let me speak to those of you who might be a bit more seasoned, who might be a bit older in the congregation. Please hear this, do not equate how long you've been a Christian with spiritual maturity. I know people that have been a Christian for 50 years and they are drinking milk and they are not eating meat. Do not confuse experience with biblical knowledge. Don't confuse those either. In the same way that those who are younger have to listen to those who are older, those who are older need to also sometimes listen to those who are younger. Both sides have to have humility. Both sides have to, I've met people who are really young and spiritually mature, and I've met people who are really old and not spiritually mature, and vice versa, okay? Do not equate physical age with spiritual age. Now, look at the encouragement he gives. I'm writing to you fathers, those who are older slash more spiritually mature, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning, What does it mean to say you know him who's from the beginning? That is a reference to Christ. He's saying, he's already said we're forgiven. He's saying you know Christ. Christ is the one who is eternal. We already saw that in 1 John. Jesus has always existed. The father is not older than the son. When you think of Jesus as the son of God, do not think of it the way we as humans have kids. My son didn't exist and then he did, okay? That's not the case with Christ. Christ is eternally the son. If Christ is not eternally the son, then the father is not eternally father. He is eternal, but when it says here, him who's from the beginning, I think that's a reference to the beginning of the gospel. So yes and amen to Christ's eternality, that's true, but I think John's focus here is those who've known Christ from the beginning of the gospel, from the incarnation when he takes on humanity and lives the life we should have lived and takes the punishment we deserve on the cross and is resurrected. Here is the second encouragement that John gives us. You ready? You know Christ. You know Christ. Let me tell you why that's so encouraging. The person to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given is on your side, is on your team. You already have the greatest thing. The greatest thing is not a house. The greatest thing is not a boat the greatest thing is not obedient children the greatest thing is not a good marriage the greatest thing is not physical health the greatest thing is God and when you have Christ who is God you have God you have the greatest thing already it's not an if it's not I hope that I get Christ if you're a Christian you have Christ he promises never to leave you or forsake you he promises that nobody can snatch you out of his hand you already have the greatest thing in writing about conversion and obtaining Christ, several authors in uh, Christian history have said some pretty astounding things. I wanna show you a few. St. Augustine says, who lived a life, by the way, of just rampant sexual immorality and he belonged to a cult before becoming a Christian. He says this, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. You who outshine all light, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. That's from St. Augustine. Jonathan Edwards says, the soul is exceedingly ravished when it fir- first looks on the beauty of Christ. It is never weary of him. The Puritan thinker John Owen says, beholding the glory of Christ, herein would I live, herein would I die, herein would I dwell in my thoughts and affections. To the withering and consumption of all the painted beauties of this world, unto the crucifying, all things here below, until they become unto me a dead and deformed thing, no way meet for affectionate embraces. The second encouragement is that if you're a Christian, you know this, but you don't really know this. You have Christ. You know Christ. You have the greatest thing. You have the only thing that will actually satisfy. And it's, he's already yours. He's already yours. Verse 13b, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. By the way, as a quick note, where it says fathers and where it says young men, neoniskoi in Greek, these are masculine terms, but they would also apply to women, okay? It's not as though if you think, I'm an older lady. John doesn't say anything to me. You would fit under the category of fathers, or if you are maybe newer into the faith, you would fit under the category of young men, even though you are a woman. So just because Greek, like Hebrew, like English, are patriarchal languages, which means they use masculine terms to refer to generic things. Don't think that this doesn't apply to you just because you are a woman. But he says, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one, okay? Now here's something that's fascinating to me about using this phrase young men. Whether he's talking about their physical age or he's talking about their spiritual maturity, there is a fervency and there's this desire for battle within a young man, okay? You want to find who's most fired up about Jesus? You find somebody who's a new convert. You find someone who's new to the faith, and they are ready to die as a missionary in Africa if God asks them to. They are fired up. Young men physically are ready for action and for battle. So I'll tell you a little story. Um, Within the U.S. military, within special operations, there are what are known as tier one units, okay? Tier one units. Tier one units are where you take the best of the best, so you have, for example, the Navy SEALs who are already awesome. I like Navy SEALs. And then you take the best of those guys and you have SEAL Team Six, Dev Group. That's what's called a tier one unit. It's the best of the best. Or with Special Forces, right? With Special Forces, they're already incredible. And when you take the best of the best, you have what is called First Special Forces Operational Detachment, uh, uh, Detachment Delta, okay? Delta First, De- I can't talk, that's the gospel according to Porky Pig. Let me say that again. You have First Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, better known as Delta Force, okay? They call themselves the unit, they are incredible. Now the guy that founded Delta Force, a guy named Charlie Beckwith, used to have this slogan that he would use to recruit young men to Delta Force, and here's what it is. Wanted, volunteers for Project Delta will guarantee you a medal, a body bag, or both. And young men signed up in droves because they are ready for action. They are ready for battle. I have a buddy that is a Navy SEAL and he says that they used to play underwater hockey. And I said, what is underwater hockey? He said, well, you get an Olympic sized swimming pool that's like 20 feet deep and you put a 45 pound plate weight in the bottom of it and you have two teams. And the way you score is by getting the plate, swimming it up to the other team's side and putting it on the deck. But there are no rules. You can punch, you can kick, you can put someone in a headlock, underwater, whatever you want. And I thought to myself, that's all I've ever wanted, is to play underwater hockey. That sounds excellent. But that's not just true with physical age. Listen, that's true with those who are young in the faith. There's still a vibrancy. With those who are older in the faith, they bring a blessing to the church because there is a stability there, there is a humility there, there is a wisdom there. Those who are younger bring a benefit to the church because they bring a passion, they bring an exuberance. Billy Graham began his ministry, his crusades, at the age of 28. Charles Spurgeon began his ministry at just 19. Martin Luther became a theology professor at just the age of 24. John Calvin's first published work was a commentary on Cicero that he wrote in Latin at just the age of 23. He's addressing these who are new in the faith, who are younger, and he's encouraging them that they have overcome the evil one. Now, I want you to see something in in verse 13b. That's the second line in verse 13. Look at the end of the passage. It says that you've overcome the evil one. The word one is not there in Greek, okay? Literally, it just says the evil. However, that is a reference throughout the New Testament typically to the devil. Now, let me show you another place where that phrase occurs. This is free, this, this costs you no extra tithe dollars. Let me show you this in, uh, in Matthew 6, nine through 13. This is the Lord's Prayer, we're familiar with this. It says this, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, look at this last phrase, but deliver us from evil. What does that mean? Some people think it's just a repetition of temptation. Lead us not into temptation and it's a Hindiades, but deliver us from temptation, deliver us from evil. But what other scholars have pointed out is in Greek, it literally says the evil, the exact same phrase that's used in 1 John. To say it another way, God doesn't always protect us from suffering. He doesn't always protect us from generic evil. This may be a prayer to say, protect us from the evil one like in 1 John. So here's your third encouragement that you need. The devil has already been defeated in your life and will one day be ultimately defeated. Let me say that again. The devil, the one who hates you the most, he hates you because God loves you, the one who wants hell for you, the one who wants you to fall into temptation, the one who is your enemy, has already been defeated. Yes, one day he will be ultimately defeated. He will be thrown in the lake of fire and we will dance on his grave, if you want to say it that way. But he's already been dealt the death blow, that when Christ came, he came to bind up the strong man. He came to crush him who is evil. As 1 John will say that the Son of God uh, appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That's the third encouragement you need to hear. The devil has already been defeated in your life and will one day be ultimately defeated. Let me read you some passages about this to encourage you. First John 4:4, little children, there it is again. Thank you, Grandfather John. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As I've said before, When demons want to watch a scary movie, they watch The Passion. They watch The Passion. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Luke 10, 17 through 19. Listen to this one. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, the uh, hypercharismatics have taken that verse to mean a bunch of weird things. That verse is not about how you should go out and play with snakes and become a demon hunter like Blade. That's not what that verse is about. What that verse is saying is that when Christ's kingdom comes, it shatters the kingdom of the enemy. The power is in Christ. The power is not you, the power is in Christ and you have overcome the evil one. Now let me tell you why I think John is writing this in this letter. He's writing to Christians, many of whom were tempted to leave the faith, many of whom were tempted to fall into sexual immorality and so he's encouraging them to say you've overcome the evil one and there's this hint, so therefore keep overcoming. So therefore keep overcoming. Let me say it this way. Do you know where the devil is most at work in your life? It's in the place that you're not aware of. It's in the place that's really subtle. I think we think of spiritual attack like this, that you're just walking down the street and then a demon pops out of the bush and jumps on you and you have a panic attack. That's how we think of spiritual attack. Yes, maybe with panic attacks or something like that. The primary way, though, that the devil works is in those subtle ways. It's those little sins that you're not really aware of that grow and grow and grow and grow. It's where you've begun flirting with your secretary, which two years later is an affair. It's where you've begun not averting your eyes from, uh, from lustful things and that turns into some type of sexual sin. It's when there's bitterness in your heart and instead of forgiving that person and reconciling with them, you just let it grow. If you wanna know where the devil is most active in your life, ask other people around you. Look for those places that you're not aware of. Look for those places that are subtle. John is warning them to say, I've written this to you because you've overcome the devil. But the reason he's having to say that is so that they will continue overcoming. They will continue being faithful and not fall away like some of the readers of this letter. Verse 13c, I write to you children because you know the Father. Now let me address a few things here. First of all, in some English Bible versions, this occurs in verse 14. So don't let that freak you out. The content is the same. Some versions, it occurs at the end of verse 13, like the ESV, Others, it occurs the first part of verse 14. The text of the Bible is what's inspired. The original autographs, the text of the Bible is what God has inspired. The chapter and verse divisions didn't come along till much later. They're not inspired, so this shouldn't freak you out. The only reason they added chapter and verse divisions is so you could find things in the Bible. So I didn't have to say, turn to that story where there's a big giant, you're like, oh man, where is that? I could give you, I could give you chapter and verse. So don't let that freak you out. Also notice this, that the tense of the verb has changed. Three times he said, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, present tense. And now for the next three, he changes it to, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. What is called in Greek, an aorist tense. An aorist tense doesn't mean it's in the past. It just means it's undefined. An aorist tense is a lazy tense. It doesn't tell you anything other than there's this event, okay? It doesn't tell you much about it. Why does he switch tenses? He did children, fathers, young men, and now he's gonna do children, fathers, young men. Why does he switch tense right in the middle of it? Well, what some people think is that when he's saying, I am writing these things to you, that's talking about what he's currently writing at that time, whereas when he says, I wrote or I write to you, he's talking about his teaching and letter as a whole. If that's confusing to you, here's the reason I think that he switches tense, ready? It's a poem. He's just trying to mix it up a bit. You wouldn't say something like this. You wouldn't say, "Bob and I went to Walmart and Bob likes cereal so Bob bought some cereal so Bob could eat it later." You'd say, "Say him. Stop saying Bob. It's uh, it's annoying." Because he's writing in this poetic way, he's using this figurative language. What he's most likely doing is switching it up just for rhetorical purposes, just so he's not using the same word over and over. That's the same reason why he uses the word "little children" technia, earlier, and here he uses just paideon, just children, uh, which is, it's the same idea. There's not, people read too much into that, okay? But here's the fourth encouragement you get here from this verse. Because you know the Son, you know the Father. That's what he's saying. You know the, because you know the Son, you know the Father, okay? Let me ask you this question. Do Muslims worship the same God as Christians? That's kind of a popular idea that people will say. They really just worship the same God. If someone ever asks me, and I've had a guy who's Muslim say this, Zach, we worship the same God. I say to him, I worship a crucified Jew on a cross. Is that who you worship? Then we don't worship the same God. I worship a God who is Trinitarian. I worship a God, the second member of that Trinity came down and became a man. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the God of Ishmael. We do not worship the same God. There is no getting God without going through Christ, okay? If you have the Son, you have the Father. Now listen, when I say going through Christ, I need to clarify this. Jesus is not like some conduit that just really gets you to God. He is God, so when you get him, you also get the Trinity. You get the Father, and then by implication, the Spirit. So yes, there is no going to the Father but through the Son, but it's not as though Jesus is just this conduit. He is the God you're trying to get to. And when you have Christ, you also have the Father and you have the Spirit because our God is a Trinity. You cannot have one member of the Trinity without having the other members as well. Verse 14a, I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. Now, I'm not gonna say much on this verse because that's literally what he's already said. Okay, this one's interesting because this is the one that he repeats twice. When he talks about fathers, he says, you know, you know him who is from the beginning and these kind of things. Now, I want you to understand, though, that when he says that you know God, he's talking about a personal relationship with God. It's a deep knowing. It's an intimate knowing. It's not, I believe in God. The devil believes in God. That's not what you're going for, okay? It's rather knowing God. It's being in fellowship with God. It's not being under God's wrath. It's being God's friend. So one of the things that we will sometimes do on staff to Jared Lawson, who's our new pastoral resident, is we will intentionally call him by the wrong name so that he doesn't think we're actually his friends. That's how we say I love you. So he'll be like, hey, Zach, and I'll be like, hey, Jerry, because his name's Jared, or hey, Gerald, or my favorite, hey, Herod, Herod Lawson, right? We will do that to try to separate the distance between us and the lowly pastoral resident, okay? This text is doing the opposite. It's saying you have access to God. Who gets to wake up, I think this is a Tim Keller quote, who gets to wake up a king at two in the morning and ask for a glass of water other than the king's son? Right? You have that kind of access to God through Christ. You know him who's from the beginning. Verse 14b, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome The evil one. Now, here's what's interesting. He's already said that they've overcome the evil one, but here we get two new qualifiers. He says that they're strong and that God's word, meaning the gospel, abides in them, okay? Abides in them. So here's the fifth and final encouragement for you from this text. You are strong because the gospel abides in you. The word of God can mean many things. Sometimes it's a reference to Christ. Sometimes it's a reference to the Bible itself. Sometimes it's a reference here in this context. He's not trying to separate all those things out. The the gospel of your salvation dwells in you. Christ dwells in you. You know God's word. He's lumping those things together. He's saying you're strong, but your strength doesn't come from you. It's you're strong because the gospel abides in you. In all these passages, John is just reminding us of something that we already know, but we have a tendency to forget. So my son, his name is Judah, and he's four, and he is so smart, okay? Now, I know all parents think that, Right, Zach, my kid just learned to write his full name. He's 14. I'm not impressed, okay? Judah is objectively smart. He'll be watching a TV show and he'll say, Daddy, you see that car? Somebody gave me that on my birthday two years ago. It was in this wrapping paper and this is how many people were there. And I'm like, what is happening, okay? He's a smart little boy. And he recently turned four. And so his mother and I went into his room and woke him up and said, Hey, buddy, happy birthday. You're four. And he goes, he looks at himself. He goes, I'm Four we said, yeah, you're four. He goes, am I bigger? We're like, well, I mean, probably bigger than last year, but no, you're not really bigger. Uh, Are you sure? We're like, what do you mean, am I sure? Yes, how do you know I'm four? Well, because this is your birth date, and four years went by, and we're not lying to you, you're four, okay? Now, let me tell you why that's important. We have a tendency to do what he does, and so we need to be reminded by God of what's actually true. God says, you're forgiven. And we look at our sin. We look at ourselves and we say, I don't look forgiven. And God says, I don't care how you look. What I declare you to be is what's true of you. We think to ourselves, I don't, I don't feel loved. I don't feel like I know Christ. I don't feel like I've overcome the evil one. A lot of times I feel like the evil one has overcome me. And what John is doing is saying, I don't care how you look. I don't care how you feel. I don't care what you think is true as you look at yourself. The way God looks at you, because he only looks at you through his Jesus glasses, sees you as forgiven, having overcome the devil, knowing Christ, knowing the Father, etc. all these encouragements that he's just given us. We have a tendency, like my son, to look and say, I don't feel for, and I don't feel like I'm bigger, so I must not be. And what the gospel does is it turns us around. It says, you don't get to go by your feelings. You don't get to go by your actions. You don't get to go by what seems to be the case. God has declared you to be loved and accepted and forgiven. That's true whether you believe it or not. For the rest of the day, he'd still say, I'm four. And I'm like, yes. And guess what? Even though he doubted that he was four, that didn't actually change anything about his age. Let the reader understand. So I can't think of a better way to end this sermon than just by reading you some encouraging truths, okay? Some encouraging truths. These are not so you'll beat yourself up and try to do better. Just hear these good words from God because that's what John's doing. John's already had to critique them and here you get this kind pastoral word of encouragement and so I want to end the sermon by just reading seven passages and just let these wash over you. If you're self-condemning, you're anxious, you're struggling, just listen to how kind God is. Psalm 103, 8 through 13. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2, eight through nine. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 4, four through five. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Meaning God doesn't save righteous people. He saves sinners and he gives them the status of righteous because of Christ, okay? If you think, Zach, I'm such a sinner, take heart, Jesus died for sinners. He did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The well have no need of a physician but the sick. Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 1 John three nineteen through 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. When we don't feel for, God still knows we are for. 2 Timothy two thirteen. I love this passage. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That God's commitment to the Christian is a binding commitment. Let's pray, and then we'll partake of communion. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for this text. I pray that it would encourage our hearts. I pray that we might remember these truths. I confess that I often don't feel forgiven. I don't feel like you and I are cool, I don't feel like uh, I'm overcoming the evil one, but I thank you that you encourage us in these things just for that reason, that our feelings are liars and what we think has a tendency to be untrue. So we pray that you would bless these elements as we partake of them, as we uh, commune with you through partaking of communion. We love you and thank you in Christ's name, amen.